This is Keys to the City with Anthony Weiner. Welcome to Keys to the City, Episode 14, a podcast about the problems facing New York City and the enduring power of ideas. I'm Anthony Weiner. From existential threats to pet peeves, each week together we'll resist the temptation to curse the darkness. Instead, we'll try to light a candle by bringing to light things that have worked before or new ways to get things done. Today we're going to touch on an idea that has been adopted but has been in the news frequently for the last couple of weeks. And that is the idea about the way we run elections in the city of New York. And for years and years, we had basically a simple system that was winner take all. If you're a city council member and you're running for re-election to the city council or you're challenging someone and you have 22 people in the race and the leading candidate gets 15%, they become the nominee. And... They go on to the general election where, in most cases, with with the exception of some pockets on Staten Island and some pockets in Northeast Queens, for the most part, that meant that the winner of the Democratic nomination went on to become the winner. And since we wanted to be sure that there was a majority that for the big races in the city, the way we did it for mayor, for public advocate, and for controller, was we would have a runoff if there were two candidates that if you did not emerge with at least 40% in the primary, you'd have a runoff. The top two people would have a runoff. And let me tell you how this experience worked out in my career. In 1991, when I was running for city council, I ran in a six-way race for city council for an open seat. I wasn't expected to win, but I did. But with only, I think it was, 26 or 27% of the vote. And I say I won because I won the Democratic nomination, which then was, and still is, in that part, well, actually, that part of Brooklyn now has changed some. It was in southern Brooklyn in Sheepshead Bay, Manhattan Beach. But it was, at the time, tantamount to election. I had only nominal opposition on the Republican line. And so, basically, I wound up becoming the council member with only 26% of the Democrats supporting me in that pivotal election. When I ran for Congress in 1998, a similar thing happened, a four-way primary. I won with 27 or 28% of the vote. And then I became the Democratic nominee. And as such, I had such an overwhelming advantage in that part of the city that I cruised to election when I faced my Republican. When I ran for mayor in 2005, and we're talking about municipal elections here principally, in 2005, I had my first experience with the runoff. And that is I was running as a kind of a long shot candidate for mayor in 2005. It was the first re-election for Michael Bloomberg. The leading candidates were Fernando Ferrer, who was the borough president of the Bronx, of C. Virginia Fields, the borough president of Manhattan, and the speaker of the city council, Gifford Miller. And as you can imagine, with that lineup, a member of Congress, I was, was basically running fourth most of the race. I surged at the end. And when the votes were counted on election night, on primary election night, it looked like Fernando Ferrer had only 39% of the vote. He did not clear 40%, and I was in second place. And what would have happened is there would have been a runoff between the two of us. And I decided late that night that that runoff would be divisive, that it would be racially divisive and it would be divisive for our party, and that if we were going to meet Mike Bloomberg, 
that it was not going to be helpful. It was going to sap us both, and it would be very difficult for us to prevail. And I base that on the idea that there had been very divisive primaries and runoffs before. For example, in 2001, just four years earlier, there was a runoff between Mark Green and Fernando Ferrer that was very divisive, and it wound up costing the Democrats the chance to beat Mike Bloomberg. So with that in mind, I deferred. I held a press conference in front of my home, and I said, I'm going to eschew the opportunity for a runoff, and I'm going to let Fernando Ferrer proceed as the nominee. Now, there is some mixed history of what came next. They found a whole bunch of votes in the Bronx, I'm told, <laughs> where suddenly he got to 40.001. We never contested any of those ballots. We never looked at the ballots from our perspective. So it's safe to say that probably it would have gone to a runoff if I had chosen to. Some people say that, no, it didn't. This is a little bit of sidebar because what I want to talk about is whether or not the idea of having runoffs in the first place is a good idea and whether they should be avoided with something that we have now called instant runoff elections or ranked choice voting, which is what we call it here in the city. And the way it works, and this idea has now been adopted, but it has been widely reported on across the country, and our guest is going to talk about that. What it basically seeks to do is to say, look, just because your first place person didn't come in doesn't mean that voters don't have interest in the other candidates. That nowhere does it say in the Constitution that run elections have to be done a certain way. You vote for one person and that's it. And by rank choice, what it achieves is a couple of things that I think are important. One, it encourages candidates to be civil to one another and to think about the entire electorate, not just trying to think about a narrow little slice. For example, if you are a candidate that has only an appeal to a hard right-wing or a hard left-wing base, and you say, you know what, there aren't a lot of them, but since this is a busy election, I might be have a chance to win just appealing to those people. I don't think necessarily the body politic or the electoral process benefits by that type of appeal. If you have to think about people's second, third, and fourth choice votes, you're much more likely to think about what is in the best interest and appealing to the most possible voters in this district, not trying to get simply the sliver that you think might get you over the top. Secondly, it would discourage people from doing things like trying to divide up the electorate racially. Huh, there's five people who are all African-American. I'm going to get in as a white person and say, all right, I'm going to try to win it almost by default by, being, by appealing only to the racial biases that might be at play when people vote. Because if you have ranked choice voting, what will eventually happen is that person's votes, would, he wouldn't necessarily, that person wouldn't necessarily prevail with that strategy when you start collecting second and third choice votes. And the way the process works, and even though we've been through it in New York City, you might not understand it, you rank the different candidates and you say, this is first, this is second, this is third, this is fourth. And if no one gets 50% of the vote, then they go to the second Oh, they go to the person with the last place votes, they eliminate them, but then take their second place votes and apportion them to the candidates above. Another thing that it does, importantly, is it saves the expense that goes into runoff elections. I told you about 2009. In New York City, New York City spent $15 million on a runoff election in 2009, where there were only $228,000 
uh, two hundred twenty-eight thousand voters. That was seventy-two dollars a voter, and the reason it is, is because think about it. You've not only got the primary, which a lot of people are advertising. They're trying to get people come out. You've got the general election, which people are used to the first Tuesday following the first Monday of November. They're used to coming out. Imagine sticking another one in. And we had some experience with that this year when we had the August races for Congress and for the state Senate. We saw what a low turnout that is. Imagine if it's just one single race. And that's often what runoffs are. Those are expensive episodes. Now, I want to make one final point. There was a lot of commentary and criticism about some elements of the ranked choice voting that we had in New York City in 2021. One was, it was confusing. I don't think that was actually voters who thought that. It might have been confusing when they were kind of reporting the results because it took a little bit of a delay. Sometimes people that were in first place dropped down to second place, so that can only happen in one council race. So explaining what was going on in the tallying process, but if you tell people rank the choices that you have, people do that all the time when they're going shopping for something or they're naming their favorite teams. People rank things all the time. It's one of the things kids love doing. I think it's something that people understand fairly easily. A second thing is there's some criticism when a couple of candidates joined forces against another one. And that happened when Andrew Yang and one other candidate, I think it was Garcia, they joined together for a joint press conference towards the end of the campaign when they saw that Eric Adams was moving ahead in the polls. That is supposed to be the way things work, that candidates do what's in their self-interest and what appeals to the most number of votes. I think voters frequently say they don't like negative campaigns. There's almost no doubt in my mind that negative campaigning is reduced when you have ranked choice votings. And we saw an example of it, what happened in Alaska in this cycle when a very unpopular Republican lost out because she was unpopular. (laughs) And let me make a third point, and this is a really important point, because I'd like to see ranked choice voting be adopted more across the country. In ranked choice voting, and I alluded to this earlier, if you believe that our country is suffering from extremism, and you may believe it's left, you may believe it's the right, I'll leave it for you to decide whether you think that's the case. But if you believe that our debate has gotten too extreme, and I do, I have a show called The Middle that focuses on trying to find common ground solutions, then think about what the effect of ranked choice voting might have in the future, particularly if you have so-called jungle primaries, where every candidate of whatever the party gets into the primary and the top two proceed to the finish. There is no way that someone would get into a top two jungle primary and say, I am the hard right Trump at all cost candidate, or I am the hard left AOC at all cost candidate, because it would wind up locking you into a place that you would probably lose out on 50 or 60 percent of the electorate who might be considering you. What you're likely to do is try to figure out ways, not that you walk away from certain positions, but you try to not be extreme. And I believe that's what our country could use today, is more candidates who are seeming to be and are indeed less extreme, and I think ranked choice voting would do that. So that's kind of my checkup on an idea that has been adopted. I said we were going to do this from time to time. It was idea 44 back when I had it. I mean, that was in the original idea book, so it was long before I had even run or even before I was in my own runoff. But it was an idea that I had, and I still think it's the right one. And we're going to, from time to time in Keesla City, 
review some ideas that have been adopted. I'm proud to say of the 120-some ideas that I had, a lot of them were. And when we come back, a guest who is going to talk not only about the experience we had in New York City, but also how ranked choice voting is playing out around the country. On the other side of the break, a very interesting guest to talk about Idea 44, bringing ranked choice voting to more and more voters. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Keys to the City. For those of you who listen to the podcast, you know what we do is I pontificate about an idea and then we bring in someone who is a legitimate expert on that idea to talk about whether it's all wet or it makes some sense. In the case of ranked choice voting, it's something that has been adopted in New York City in its infancy and is also, I don't know if you say spreading around the country, but certainly more prevalent. And we've all become kind of armchair experts at election law because we've been following the travails of people trying to deny the reality of the election in 2020. So we've heard some discussion about it. But our guest today is Jerry Goldfeder, who literally wrote the book about election law, Goldfeder's Modern Election Law. He is the director of the Voting Rights and Democracy Project at Fordham Law School and practices election and campaign finance law at Struck, Struck and Levan. Jerry, thank you very much for joining us. Sure, it's good to see you. So before we go too much into the issue of ranked choice voting in particular, tell us a little bit, you know, it really is true. Everyone seems to think they know election law. And let me see if I can summarize it. It's the process of deciding who's allowed to run, the process to get on the ballot, the process of running the actual election. And then there's also stuff around it in the off years about campaign finance and things like that to make sure candidates remain in compliance throughout the year. Are there any elements that I've left out, I guess, or is that basically the structure of how That's you're That's basically practicing? the structure. And of course, there's a whole set of ethics prescriptions that go along with being a candidate and being an elected official. And why is it said, and maybe this is anachronistic, maybe this has changed over time, that New York is kind of the epicenter of election law practice? Is it because our laws are more extensive and complicated? Is it because we're a big state? Why is it said, and is that becoming less and less the case? Well, the New York City Bar Association about 25 years ago put out a study that said that we had, New York had approximately 50% of election law litigation in the country. And I think that that's still pretty much the case. And the reason is that candidates like to throw their opponents off the ballot. We have a very arcane and very specific set of laws with regard to how to get on the ballot in order to run. Not anybody can just run for office. You have to petition to get on the ballot, certain number of signatures, they have to be done correctly and so on. And candidates would rather throw off their opponent in court than to have to go to the voters and perhaps lose. And this is an interesting area of the law because it is the rules of the road for candidates written by elected officials who are, by definition, interested in their own candidacy. Um, and so if you, absolutely. And so if you look really carefully at the election law, you'll see that there are many provisions that uh, favor incumbents or 
act as disincentives for insurgents, making it difficult for insurgents to get on the ballot. It's not as bad as it used to be, but it's still a set of obstacles. It is. It's kind of like having people decide, well, what rules are we going to have for getting into the banking business? And it's going to be decided by a bunch of bankers who are already in the business. There's not a lot of incentive. We already have that. Yeah, that's probably (laughs) true also. So let's talk a little bit about ranked choice voting. It's relatively new in New York. You wrote in your law review article, something interesting, your law journal article that was published recently in the New York Law Journal, something interesting about the history of the way we do elections in our city. You know, we have for the big offices, mayor, controller, public advocate at the time, city council president, we had or used to have a runoff system. Now, why was that put into place? Because that seems like a step towards what we're going for here. Well, that was put into place in the early 1970s. So we hate to date ourselves, but you need to look at the 1969 Democratic Party primary where there are a whole bunch of candidates, I believe there were five candidates running for mayor of the city of New York in 1969. And the most conservative of the Democrats won that primary. His name was Mario Procaccino. He was the controller of the city of New York and he beat much more liberal candidates. Well, the liberal Democratic Party establishment were astonished and chagrined that Mario Procaccino would be the standard bearer that year. And a lot of those Democrats, establishment Democrats, actually supported John Lindsay running for re-election for mayor rather than Procaccino. So a few years later, the legislature, again controlled by the Democratic Party for the most part, instituted runoffs for just three races in all of New York State. The mayor, the then city council president, and the controller of the city of New York. And in order to win the primary and then advance to the general election, candidate needed to get 40%. And you talked about that in your intro earlier. And so therefore, a right-wing candidate or a left-wing candidate couldn't just win a plurality and be the Democratic nominee. They really had to get 40%, which is, it's not as great as a majority, but nonetheless, it's a, a sizable percentage of the vote. So starting then, until last year, that's what we had. And what it meant was uh, every now and again, uh, a candidate running for a citywide office didn't get 40%. The plurality winner didn't get it. And so we had a runoff. And the runoffs were low turnouts. They didn't attract a lot of attention, but nevertheless, that was the law. But only for those three races in all of New York State. But that experiment, if we're going to call it that, that effort, was part of a similar instinct that is at play now with ranked choice voting. This idea of making sure that the guy that emerges for these, or woman that emerges for these bigger offices, that they have a broader support that you can't have. So they were trying to achieve that. And they wound up, frankly, creating another problem that in these runoffs, they became very racialized and it became an argument almost for white New York to unify for a white candidate and to make it harder for a minority candidate. That's obviously that math has changed, but it created a divisive system. The ranked choice voting aspires to do something different, doesn't it? It aspires to try to have a more, kind of have everyone have a, a little bit of a say in the final outcome, even if they didn't, if their chosen candidate didn't win, right? That's right. So the winner 
ultimately in a ranked choice voting situation has a support of a broad range of the particular electorate. So if you have five candidates running or six candidates running, you couldn't win with 18% of the vote or even 25% of the vote or even 30% of the vote. You had to really attract support from a broader base, whether you were their first choice or their second choice or their third choice. So the winner in last year's elections uh, for mayor, for example, uh, Eric Adams, he, he was able to attract a broad base from the people who wanted him first, as well as the people who wanted him second or even third. And everyone then had the feeling, I shouldn't say everyone, but most people had the feeling then that he actually was representative of the Democratic Party constituency because he didn't just slip in with a small percentage uh, and he was able to appeal to voters who supported somebody else first, but were likely to support him second or third. But doesn't this... And by the way, when you look at the facts of last year, so there are 59 elections. There's 51 city council people. There's five borough presidents and three citywide. Whoever was leading on the first round, before we looked at a voter's second choice and third choice, in 56 out of 59 of those cases, Whoever was leading on the first round, round ultimately won. There were only three cases where somebody's winning on the first round and then you count up the second choices and the third choices and the first round plurality winner lost. And so ranked choice voting actually demonstrated that whether you were winning in the first round or you weren't winning in the first round, the ultimate winner had sufficient support of most of the people, a majority of the district. Yeah, and it, it's worth noting that I believe this is right. In 1977, when Ed Koch was elected mayor, he didn't win a single county. He wound up being second, and for my memory serves, second in all five boroughs. And on the first, on the first round. No, Ed Koch. There wasn't. Was there? Oh, you mean not in the runoff? I, I, yeah. In the he wound up coming. He came in first, I believe. He came in first. Mario Cuomo, now Cuomo was second. Yeah. And but then he, there were a whole bunch of other candidates, and then they went into a runoff, and he won. But the point I'm making is that we've had mayors before that have largely pursued this trying to have a broad appeal, kind of be, don't have a particular strong pocket. Well, well, he obviously had pockets of support, but kind of run second. But let me ask you whether this is offensive to kind of the fundamental way that people view elections, which is you go out, you state your case, and whoever gets the most votes wins. Isn't this a scenario, aren't we creating a scenario more that whatever coalition has the most votes wins? So let's take the mayor's race. The, the mayor's race actually last time doesn't bear out this theory because you arguably had the top two people. You recently won a dollar bet for me when you, you knew the second place finisher was Garcia, who was running as a fairly moderate. Adams was running as a fairly moderate and they came in one, two. But you make the point using the Goldman race recently in New York 10 to say that maybe if you had ranked choice voting in that race, and again, it's, this is just a guess because people would run their campaigns differently the progressive voters might have coalesced either naturally or because of the ranking, they would have coalesced behind a more progressive candidate. Aren't we creating- well, Actually, I don't make that point. Right, I'm saying that some people, people argue- A lot that, of people do make that point. 
I have a different analysis. My analysis is that he might not have won because there were very strong women candidates running. And I think, and if I recall correctly, of that electorate of the people who voted, there was about 57% women voting. So between and among Liz Holtzman and Joanne Simon and Carlina Rivera, if we had ranked choice voting, I think that one of them would have won uh, 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 rather than a so-called progressive, although they were, they are all progressive in their own way. Yeah, I think gender appeals are wildly overstated. I ran in. Well, I think that's that may be generally true. But given the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade, we have seen tremendous increase in voter registration by women. And we have seen an increase in participation by women. And when you have strong women running in a field of a multi-candidate field like we did in New York 10, I think that if we had ranked choice voting, one of the women would have won. Well, this is a great jumping off point. This is a great jumping off point for one of the arguments for ranked choice voting, because in that race, three, I recall, or at least two of the women, Rivera and Holtzman, got together and and formed an alliance to make the argument that whoever you vote for, vote for a woman. That's right. They did. And that a similar type of alliance was formed in, in campaign 21 between Yang, I believe, and Garcia. There was a little bit of a shotgun wedding there. De Garcia didn't seem to be all that happy about being there. But I, I guess I I'm, what I'm asking. at the altar. Um, that's true. But uh, what I guess I'm asking is, it isn't one of the effects of this that people are not too, are less inclined to be negative on one another and more inclined to try to figure out ways to appeal to other people's base and isn't that kind of a positive development? That's a good, and, and I think that's a good thing. And that, and experience bears that out. I mean, after all, if you think that you're going to get 25% of the vote, you don't want to offend people who are voting for somebody else as their number one choice. You want them to rank you second. So if they get eliminated, those votes will go to you. And we've seen this. We, we have ranked choice voting in San Francisco, we have it in a number of other cities. We have it in the state of Maine for all offices, including congressional races. And we've seen candidates appealing to other candidates' voters. And that means that, at least theoretically, and from our experience thus far, we see less hyperpartisanship and we have more civility in the way people are campaigning. And I think people appreciate that. Yeah, I think of there are many different imperatives that we have. One is obviously the increased participation. There's an argument to be made, well, my candidate is not doing terribly well. I'll just sit it out. But if you can say, okay, I'll vote them number one, but I can still weigh in on the outcome of the race. That's one way I think it increases participation. I think it increases participation because people say, I don't know if this is borne out by statistics, that people don't like negative campaigns. It's less likely to be a negative campaign. And obviously it's increased participation over runoffs, which have a dreadful record in terms of their participation level. An interesting, we have another, there aren't a ton of case studies about this, but we just had a version of this in Alaska where a very unpopular candidate, despite her party label, didn't win because people basically said, I'd rather have a Democrat that I like, even if I'm a Republican, than one that I don't. So in that case, it's, it was really interesting. So it's a special election for Congress in Alaska, and it's ranked choice voting. So you have a Democrat, you have two Republicans. 
Palin being one of the Republicans, the unpopular Republican that you're referring to. So the Democrat comes in first in the first go around, but doesn't get 50% plus one. The other Republican, not Palin, the other Republican therefore gets eliminated because he came in last and his votes, his number two votes are distributed between the Democrat and Palin. Most of his votes, most of his second choice votes actually went to Palin, but enough of them went to the Democrat who had been leading to put the Democrat over the top. Right. So it's actually quite interesting when you look at that race to see how different the Republicans treated their number two choices. Well, it's also, it might be sui generis. I mean, all of these races have their own little quirks. I don't know if you're ever going to have a situation exactly like that. But that race raises a different question. And that is they run in a so-called jungle system. Explain to our listeners how that differs from what we do here in New York City. Well, so that's a good point because they have a hybrid system in Alaska. The first go around is the primary. The second go around is the general election, or in this case, it was the special election. So the first go around, the top four vote getters win and they advance the general election. Irrespective of party. Irrespective of party. And then you go to ranked choice voting. So the first, the first round is, as you say, it's called the jungle primary, because anybody could run and everybody can vote in, in that election. And you can vote for a Democrat, whether you're a Democrat, you can vote for Republican, irrespective of what your enrollment, if, even if you're not enrolled, and the, the top four win. And that means if the top four were all Republicans, then they would advance to the general election or if the top four, which is more likely than not in Alaska. In California, you have that as well. They, in that case, it's the top two. And so we've had a number of examples in California where the top two vote getters of the primary are both Republicans. And sometimes the top two vote getters are both Republicans. Well, on some level, that really makes sense because they're the top two vote getters. So then we pit them against each other uh, in the general election. And in a way, people feel satisfied that it's not just the top vote getter in the Republican Party and the top vote getter in the Democratic Party, because let's assume the top, using California as an example, the top vote getter in the Republican primary got less than number two and number right. three in the Democratic Party primary. So the number two and three in the Democratic Party primary, they should be advancing to the general. So their system allows that to happen. Now let's very satisfying to the voter. Well, let's transpose that into New York City. You know, I do a show on WABC radio, a lot of conservative listeners, they watch the primaries going on in New York City, almost as spectators, because practically speaking, the Republican nominee, uh, my partner, Curtis Sliwa was the nominee this time, practically speaking, numerically, they are not going to finish, they're not going to win the mayoral election. But if it was a more of a jungle system, that Republicans felt more like, okay, we can have an influence on the outcome of who the top two are. Or if you flash back to 2001 and think about Mike Bloomberg having to go through this contorting system of getting into a Republican primary where he wasn't terribly comfortable, 
this is a convoluted way to set up this question, but would a jungle primary have the a jungle election rather where Democrats and Republicans all ran to determine the top two? That would probably increase turnout, but is it something with your experience as a lawyer in New York State? Is it something that New York legislators would have any interest in putting in for themselves? Is there a scenario where they would say, hey, this is not bad for me? I don't think it, I don't think it would really matter, except in very few uh, areas of the state. Because generally speaking, we have Democratic districts and Republican districts. Here in New York City, there are a few areas where Republicans can win. So in a few areas, it might make a difference. But for the most part, it wouldn't. And therefore, the legislature might be inclined to do so. But this legislature, the legislature is never inclined to make the kind of reforms that we've seen here in New York City. Well, you don't even need the word reforms. They're not inclined to make changes. They, they came up in this system. It's worked for them. By definition, they're in office. But let me wrap up with this thought, though. If you take the combination of the two concepts that we talked about today, ranked choice voting and a jungle system where your Democrats and Republicans are in the same, the same pot, so to speak, you then have maybe the best of both worlds. You have people who can express their second choices. So you can, you can see a scenario where, where Mayor Adams might say, you know what, I'm going to try to appeal for some Republican votes in this to get some of the, maybe people that went out and said, I'm a Republican, I'm going to vote for Curtis Lewa, but I like Kathleen Garcia because she seems like just a bureaucrat type I think we, we would want, like Mike Bloomberg. Could you see a scenario where the next evolution after ranked choice voting is, you know what, let Republicans and Democrats get into the same pot because that would further increase participation, further reduce um, partisanship, and maybe the outcome wouldn't be so bad. Can you see that as perhaps the next step in the evolution of this system? Well, you're really jumping ahead of yourself, Anthony. That's my. That's basically my slogan, Anthony. We, we are jumping ahead of ourselves. We, but we have ranked choice voting in New York City because we've amended uh, the city charter, and we have some we have some control over our own elections here in New York City. But we don't have ranked choice voting in New York State, and so you could be an assembly person or a state senator representing only New York City voters, and you still are under the old system where the plurality winner. So let's focus our attention on trying to expand ranked choice voting throughout the state. I think that's where we should look. That's fair enough. And and perhaps for congressional officers, we're, we're permitted to change yes, it. Yes, absolutely. For our, for, we're permitted to change it for the seating of our congressional, um, our, our, our Congress people? Absolutely. The state legislature can decide how we elect, how we nominate and elect everyone in the state. I'm curious, and I asked you, I was I told you I was going to ask you this offline, but I'm curious, usually when the state enters an area of the law, I'm not a lawyer, when the state enters an area of the law and says, we're going to set up a, a runoff system, that usually means that localities are precluded from preempting them by changing it themselves. How did it turn out that we got rid of a state initiative, meaning the the um, the runoff system by replacing it here in the city. How did that work out mechanically? Well, you know, we have our own campaign finance law. We did that by amending the city charter 30 years ago. We have fewer signatures required to get on the ballot when you're running for city council or mayor. We have nonpartisan elections, special elections when there's a vacancy for city council or public advocate 
or mayor. We have a whole host of regulations in New York City because localities in the state have certain prerogatives by which they can amend their own city charter to conduct their own elections as they see fit. It's been challenged in court. The campaign finance uh, rules were challenged in court unsuccessfully. And I don't think anybody has sought to challenge uh, ranked choice voting yet as New York City going beyond its authority. And now right. that done it, I think if, that if it were to be challenged, it would fail. So, in, so, so by, by localities can do the same thing. We can have, we have 62 cities. Every city can decide its own set of regulations. For right, but they, they cannot, well, that's interesting. So in other words, they could have, when the state legislature changed to the runoff, we in the city could have just said, nope, we're not going to do that. We're going to change our, our constitution and overturn your action. That seems kind of strange for, I mean, I know if, the, for example, the federal government created a federal law, the state in most cases are preempted from going in and changing it, but this seems like a different case here. That's right. It is. And we actually, by imposing or enacting ranked choice voting here in the city, we've effectively obliterated the state law that requires runoffs only for the three top officials in New York City. It, it is kind of odd, but as I said, it hasn't been challenged. And I think given the fact that we've done it, a court is very unlikely to strike it down. Right. Well, I really appreciate your time, Jerry Goldfeder. You've enlightened us a great deal. You have written, you've written a lot. You've written literally the book on the subject of election law, and you've also opined on a couple of changes you'd like to see. I'd like to bring you back to talk about one of them, and maybe I'll just leave it here as a tease, the idea of requiring voting, saying making it a civic responsibility and a civic obligation. It's something that people have, um, have talked about as uh, an ideal, we say we hope everyone votes. I have a little bit of a different view of you from you on this. I like the back room. I like the gray beards and the gray haired ladies and the people have got some experience with this. I think we have shown that when we let the populace in, they make some strange decisions, Donald Trump. But give us 30 seconds on your other side of the argument. Don't you want full participation? Don't you want a robust democratic society? I do. That is a great summary. And in my urge to have the last word, I would say, no, I want things to go well. I want good. Oh government. my God. I can't believe you're confessing to that. Confident. I want competent governance. Jerry, go for think What makes you think that when fewer people vote, we have better elected officials? I got elected with 24%. Mic drop. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> if people want to get your book, obviously it's a heavy read, but it's fascinating. Goldfeder's Modern Election Law. I know if they want to hire you to, to help them out with a legal problem, you're at Strook, Strook and Levon. Do you have a website or a Twitter handle that you want to, that people want to reach out to or see what you've written? My Twitter handle is Jerry Goldfeder. Terrific. Jerry, thank you so much. Sure, for thank you for participating and we will be back for some final words right after this. So that was a great conversation, ranked choice voting. It's not a perfect thing. Part of it is like so many of these ideas that get adopted, they are quirky and weird and then we kind of get used to them. It's kind of like when there's a rule change in a sport. It takes a little while for the offense and defense to kind of 
catch up with it and to figure out the impact that it has. But with each one that we have, whether it be in New York's mayoral race, whether it be in the Alaska race, whether it be in the races that are going to be happening in Maine, and the more states and localities that adopt it, the more data that we'll have and the more real-life experience that we'll have to show how it's working out. And I really do appreciate your being with me on Keys to the City. If you'd like to offer an idea, a solution, a criticism, a fact check, Keys to the City at WABCRadio.com is how you reach us. And you can also download and subscribe to this episode. Anytime you do so, it helps other people learn about it. There are some apps that let you uh, offer some feedback. I like that as well uh, most of the time. Um, and you can also find an aggregation of all of these at the Red Apple Podcast Network or at the WABC Radio app that you can have on your phone. Um, and you can also find not only this ep- this show, but also The Middle, which is a show that I do every Saturday at 2 o'clock. And then at 3 o'clock on Saturday, also on Saturdays, with Curtis Sliwa, I do a show called Left Versus Right. All of those episodes are available in podcast form shortly after we go off the air. At Keys to the City, as you may know, every Thursday there's a new episode, and I look forward to seeing you next Thursday on Keys to the City.